The Sackler family is so wealthy, there's a wing at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art named after them. They own Purdue Pharma, the maker of one of the most widely prescribed and abused painkillers in America, OxyContin. 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 The market-leading prescription pain relief drug launched in 1995 that set America on a destructive road to an opioid epidemic that is still affecting millions every day. An epidemic which has directly affected the average U.S. life expectancy. When people think of the opioid epidemic, they think of Purdue Pharma. They think of the Sacklers and OxyContin. I am as dependent on OxyContin as I am on my glasses to see. On the street, a $4 prescription pill can sell for as much as $45. They claimed their opioid was different. Their reps fed this information to the doctors. The doctors prescribed, and the rest is history. A history that can be understood by statistics. On average, 91 Americans are still dying every single day. The rate of addiction to opioids has shot up by almost 500%. So today, let's learn about OxyContin. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, please circle whichever applies. Welcome back to Learning Tings. Can't help but notice I've got a couple of people from Southampton listening to the show. If you are one of my Southampton people, in it. That's all I have to say. Um, yes, that's a big fuck off yellow Learning Tings sign behind me. You've got good eyes. My word. Well done. Uh, yes, I spent my last penny on it, so... If you'd like to support me, um, I, I'll happily give you my bank details. Reach out, Dal. No delay either. I actually know them off by heart, which I encourage everyone to do because you never know when someone's going to ask to give you money. And um, what can I say? I'm always ready for it. So anyway, let's get straight into it today. Look, this is a story that is really fucking frightening and gross. And it, it's just one of those things where it's like, how the fuck did this ever happen? And how is this still on the market? So let's get cracking, shall we? Purdue Pharma, which is the company we're talking about today, was founded in 1892. But we're going to skip ahead 60 years, I believe, 60 years to the year 1952, when the company was bought by a family of three doctor brothers. Stay with me. Arthur Mortimer and Raymond Sackler. These men form the Sackler family. Get used to hearing that name. I'm going to be rubbing it through the mud throughout. Am I worried about getting sued? No, I'm not. Should I be? Um, look, I'll leave it with you. How much of a risk do you think I am to Big Pharma? Yeah, not much. I didn't think so. So in 1984, they released a drug to the market called MS Contin, an extended release of morphine. So before we get into Oxycontin and all of that. We gotta set the scene and I've also got to explain what the kind of schedules of drugs are and like kind of give you the information so you can listen to this as you go along and be like, oh, if you could let me know at the end of the episode how many times you did indeed go, oh, that would be good. Thank you. It's just for internal research, that's all. But in order to do the gasps, you need to know what the fuck we're talking about. MS content is a schedule two narcotic. What does that mean? Across the world, there are scheduling systems that basically categorize drugs according to how likely a user is to become dependent on them, um, how addictive they are, things like that. And in terms of like how dangerous it is to be engaging with this drug without a medical professional by your side the whole time. 
In the United States, a Schedule 5 drug, which is the lowest category in terms of like lowest risk, would be something like a cough syrup with like a little bit of codeine in it. Schedule 4 moves into drugs like Xanax, Valium and Tramadol, which is another pain relief. Schedule 3 has ketamine and anabolic steroids in it. Fun. And Schedule 2, which is what MS Contin is classified as, is basically all of your pain relief prescription drugs on the market. Oxycodone, fentanyl, um, even like Adderall and Ritalin. And then Schedule 1 drugs basically include all of the drugs that they wouldn't even let you use even under the care of a medical professional. And weirdly enough, it's three drugs I just never would have seen coming. Well, two drugs. First is heroin. That makes sense. But the other two are LSD and marijuana. Homie, we're using that. I'm prescribed marijuana. I am. By a doctor. A real one. (laughs) It sounds like I'm taking the piss. I actually am. I have chronic pain. But like, I feel like Apart from heroin, those are like the main party drugs that you start with as a teenager. Illegally, not me, never me. But yeah, that's just a weird, I I feel like we're doing medical trials with LSD and stuff. Anyway, those are the schedules. MS Contin sat in schedule two, but it was basically just prescribed to those with terminal cancer um, or with really acute pain. So it was kind of like an end of life drug that they would give to people to give them a little bit of a break because it it is a really strong opioid and the addiction rates are really high for most opioids. And so there's not much of a risk in prescribing someone who is terminally ill um, in terms of like having them get addicted. And up until the 90s, doctors only really prescribed opioids for end of life patients and people that had like seriously bad acute pain that they couldn't deal with. Chronic pain was not something that people got opioids for. So the market for opioid use was small. Um, It was definitely there. It's just that the market wasn't huge and it could definitely have been bigger for Big Pharma. And the Sackler family saw this too. They saw that there could be an opening in the market for prescribing more people, like a wider range of the community with opioids for people like chronic pain, things like that. And they also had another driver why they were going to push this kind of narrative. Their patent for MS Contin was about to expire. And once the patent expired, they were going to drop a drastic amount of revenue. So they needed a new drug. The Sacklers wanted to kind of reinvent the pain wheel, so to speak, the way that the world sees and treats pain. They wanted to create an opioid-based medication that could be prescribed for general Americans that are going through some form of moderate to severe pain. The blueprint was there with MS Contin, except as we've just covered, MS Contin was only prescribed to people who were usually kind of end-of-life cancer treatment. And they knew that they weren't going to be able to just randomly start pushing MS content to doctors and get doctors to go like, yeah, sure, I'll prescribe that to my person with a fucking sore elbow. Firstly, doctors would be like, no, are you daft? Secondly, um, the patent was expiring anyway, so they definitely needed a new drug. Now, to bring a new drug to market, it usually takes like up to a decade, sometimes longer, particularly for something like an opioid. The process involves several stages like there's research and development there's preclinical testing and then there's clinical trials regulatory review and then manufacturing 
The first marketing hurdle that Purdue Pharma had to overcome wasn't actually the American public. It was the FDA. Now, contrary to popular belief, I only learnt this recently, the FDA don't actually do any studies or trials themselves. They make a decision based on the information that you present them. So whatever you present them in terms of like numbers and data and reports and studies, it's up to the FDA based on the information you give them and the trials you do whether or not they're going to deem it safe for the public. So Purdue Pharma wanted two things from the FDA. The first was to get it over the line and to get a yes in terms of being able to prescribe it for people who had just have moderate to severe pain. The second thing they wanted was the ability to print on the label that the new drug was non-addictive. Oxycontin is obviously what I'm talking about here. Funnily enough, it's not that fucking different from MS content, and this happens a lot in Big Pharma when the patent runs out, um, which I believe is when other people can start making the formula and kind of just sell it as a generic. Like when you go to the pharmacy and they say like, do you want the name brand or do you want the generic? That's because that patent has expired. If this is in the episode, it means I have fact-checked this and, and that's what the case is. So OxyContin was basically copy-paste MS Contin. Um, if you actually look at the like chemical formula side by side, there's really not that much difference at all. So OxyContin had no long-term studies, no assessment of its addictive capabilities, apart from a short stint on mice, which they decided that the mice weren't getting addicted. I suppose they were asking them. When Purdue walked into the FDA offices in 1995, they were greeted by the medical doctor on their case, who worked for the FDA. His name was Curtis Wright. Now, they went back and forth multiple times. There were endless meetings trying to get the FDA over the line. Um, but there were two things that were staring Curtis Wright in the face. The first, obviously, opioid use is really tricky. An opioid of this strength is particularly tricky to get over the line for moderate pain. And the second thing was like, there was no fucking way that he was going to let them say that it was non-addictive on the label, like the FDA rather, wasn't going to let that happen. As I said, they went back and forth and no one knows what happened. So when it wasn't going the way that Purdue Pharma wanted it to go, they invited Curtis Wright to a three-day stay at a hotel near the FDA offices in Maryland, Maryland, Maryland. And no one knows what was said in that room over those three days. Those doors shut. No one came. No one went. All we know, and this is only due to release documents that have come out in lawsuits since, is that after that three-day stay, the FDA put a rubber-stamped approval on OxyContin for the general public. The other thing we know is that Curtis Wright actually helped Purdue Pharma draft their report for the FDA for approval. So this is where I'm going to pause here and say what I'm about to say, I am not at all trying to condone what Purdue Pharma did. However, they were fucking geniuses. Like they knew what the fuck they were doing. Um, it's evil, awful, it's vile what they did. But from a marketing standpoint, in terms of like false advertising, just listen to this. <laughs> The information label that they managed to get across the line and printed on these OxyContin tablet bottles basically sparked the opioid epidemic in America as we are seeing it today. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Is 
believed. I want you to think about that sentence. They got this label over the line because of those two words, is believed. There's no fact there. There's no study. There's no science behind the two words, is believed. You don't have to cross-check. It's like, is believed by who? You know, like that, the fact that they got this over the line on essentially a government document, that's what this FDA-approved label is. (sighs) FDA commissioner at the time, David Kessler, later said that the approval of OxyContin was, quote, one of the worst medical mistakes, a major mistake. And then to tie it up in a neat little bow. Curtis Wright resigned within a year of OxyContin being released to the market and found himself a job pretty quickly. Where, you ask? Well, Purdue Pharma. Where else? What's unusual about the process by which it receives its FDA approval? So they... We can insert Curtis Wright at any point here, by the way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's been approved by the FDA. It was approved in December of 1995, But for the purposes of this episode, I will always refer to it as like 1996 onwards because like I doubt they were going into doctor's surgeries at Christmas time. Um, If they were, consider me embarrassed and sheepish. Yeah. But yeah, for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to call it 1996. The big thing that Purdue Pharma had in terms of what they were going to feed their drug reps with in order to get doctors over the line was the fact that OxyContin was non-addictive. So that's what they were fucking riding on. That was the main driver for all of their sales pitches to doctors. If you've seen the movie um, Love and Other Drugs about the Viagra drug rep kind of journey, um, that's like a really good example of like what the drug rep situation is. The sales assistants were told to tell their doctors that the addiction rate of OxyContin was less than 1%. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. And any drowsiness that might occur when you start to take the medication will soon wear off in most patients. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that remarkable? How? How could an opioid have an addiction rate of less than 1%? Well, who cares? We'll come back to that later. Because of this sentence, because of that stat less than 1%, The drug had incredible potential to treat everything from a workplace injury to a hangover. Not kidding. That's something that they did actually push people to market OxyContin for to doctors. They said that you could treat your patients who have a fucking hangover or a toothache. It was also marketed as the first 12-hour long-lasting pain relief on the market. But there were three issues that doctors had to overcome both before and after they started prescribing OxyContin to their patients. The first hurdle that doctors had to overcome was the addiction rate of less than 1%. Like that's completely fucking unheard of. Still not a thing today. No, sir. Opioids are completely addicting. We know this. Humans have had a relationship with opioid use um, since the dawn of fucking time. Doctors would never prescribe a narcotic for just moderate pain. If you've had morphine in hospital intravenously, like after a surgery or for a severe incident, whatever it was for you, first of all, sorry you had to go through that, dial. Second of all, how good's the morphine, right? If you've never had morphine, the best way I can describe it is when it goes into your bloodstream, it's like your body just lets out this 
really warm and happy sigh. It's like, (sighs) that's how I describe morphine. It's not only pain relief, they actually trigger endorphins, literally the feel-good neurotransmitters. Painkillers don't actually get rid of the pain. Like, it's still there, but the endorphins are so strong that they muffle your perception of the pain. So in turn, you get feelings of pleasure, um, less anxiety, etc. And if you use the painkillers without any pain for it to actually muffle, the feelings are only more intense. Like it goes, because it's got no pain to muffle, it's just go and ham on the endorphins. Hence why it's called a high. So when the dose starts to wear off, there are actually light withdrawal signs as your body returns to normal. Um, And it's pretty normal to want those good feelings back, right? Except that's the first step along the road of addiction. And back to this whole is believed nightmare, um, the agreement that they came to with old mate Curtis Wright at the FDA was that they believed the controlled release formation of the drug would hinder abuse potential. So like as the drug was going to be released slowly into your system, there's a coating on all of these long release tablets that your stomach literally has to break down this coating. And that's the way that it slowly releases into your system. So because of this coating, because of this slow release formula, they believe that because people weren't going to get an immediate high, uh, it was less likely to promote abuse in that sense. Curtis apparently even based this judgment on the history of MS Contin, the predecessor to OxyContin, which had been used for almost 10 years with very little reports of abuse. Um, even though that was only prescribed to people with fucking cancer, not um, a hangover. <laughs> imagine, imagine being able to go into a doctor's office and get a fucking opioid for a hangover. Well, these people didn't actually have to imagine. That's what was going on in the late 90s and early 2000s. <laughs> we'll come back to that 1%. Let's talk about the drug reps. So the Purdue drug reps were usually young, go-getters, charismatic, motivated, ambitious people. The company actually did psychological profiles on all the doctors, right? So they gave the drug reps a portfolio of information about all the doctors that were assigned to them in that area. They encouraged the reps, you know, if the doctors have kids, get them tickets to Disneyland. If they like golf, get them a new golf uh, club. <laughs> Sorry, not a big golfer. Um, if they liked football, get them really good seats at the next game. Apparently, I, I saw a video from an ex Purdue rep that said they had like a $20,000 a month expense account, which is psycho. And all of this was to get the doctors to trust the reps for 15 minutes of their time to talk about OxyContin and potentially get them to prescribe it. They would even say like offer to fill up the doctor's petrol or gas, gasoline, um, just to get 10 minutes of their time at the gas station while they were filling up. Like they were, um, what's a good word for this? Um, A nuisance to the general public of doctors in their area. So doctors started to prescribe. It was first rolled out in southwestern Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and rural Maine. On purpose, all areas with a high percentage of work-related injuries. They are mining areas. They are logging areas. These were big manual labor environments. And at first, it was fucking amazing. Because, yeah, oxycodone, the active ingredient in the drug, what it works. Yeah, no one's fighting that. 
Patients were getting pain relief. Their lives were seemingly returning back to normal because the thing about an opioid (laughs) is that, as we said before, it's releasing those happy endorphins. So not only is it combating the pain, but you're also getting this like genuine high of like life's worth living suddenly. Purdue actually released a campaign of, of real OxyContin patients. Like they would go out and find these OxyContin patients who would be happy to do a testimonial for the company to show how much the drug had changed their lives. And they released this like campaign to do with like OxyContin saved my life. I got my life back now. Now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. And before even a good day was hell. I mean, I couldn't enjoy nothing, but now I can enjoy myself. That's when I said wonderful. But two things were already at play within months of prescribing a patient OxyContin. First, Tolerance. Opioid tolerance can build within days. Scary, I know, but it's true, and that's why they're so fucking dangerous. Also, why doctors didn't really prescribe them that much because of the risk of addiction. The second issue was doctors were hearing from their patients that OxyContin wasn't lasting the 12, the full 12 hours. So let's go back to that 12-hour claim. Now, STAT, a medical journalism platform, went through a multi-year legal battle in order to obtain internal documents from Purdue. Some of the documents referred to a clinical trial in elderly patients to test the safety and effectiveness of OxyContin. There were 133 patients in this trial, and they concluded that the study demonstrated that controlled-release oxycodone is a safe and effective analgesic for the control of osteoarthritis-related pain. Cool. Except of these 133 patients, only 63% completed the trial. 82% of the patients had some sort of adverse reaction to the drug, including that it wasn't lasting the full 12 hours. So they knew, Purdue knew that it wasn't going to last 12 hours, even before they printed the label and did all this marketing and all that. They knew. So when doctors started reporting to their reps and the reps started reporting back to Purdue that the drug isn't lasting 12 hours, they knew they needed a game plan to set the drug back on the right track. And also one that wouldn't affect the kind of like fairy tale of OxyContin thus far, because it really was seen that way. It's all well and good for us to look back now and be like, you fucking idiots. But Purdue Pharma had fooled the general public of America and the educated doctors of America. Like, it's really hard to look look at this way, but it, it was like a fairy tale. They were like, what do you, like, it's less than 1% addictive. My patients are getting their lives back. Like, it was nothing but a success story. So in terms of this 12-hour release system and it not lasting the full 12 hours, Purdue implemented a new concept, breakthrough pain. Now, breakthrough pain is known in patients with cancer. That was the kind of the first time we'd seen the concept up until the late 90s, obviously. Breakthrough pain was a concept used to describe when patients, particularly cancer patients who were going through chemo or just in those throngs of cancer where it is just so fucking painful, where the pain is actually breaking through the painkiller that they are using. I'd like to make a statement here that is not going to happen with a fucking toothache or a hangover. But Purdue told their reps to convince the doctors that any of their patients who weren't experiencing the full 12 hours of pain relief were experiencing breakthrough pain. And the solution? Double the dose. Yeah. 
I'm going to let that one sit with you for a second. You can see how this is creating a really unique situation. You've got patients that are being prescribed what seems to be a miracle drug, an opioid, twice, twice as potent as morphine when taken orally, which can be used for anything, but is apparently non-addictive unless you fall in that 1%. The pain they're experiencing, however, isn't actually breakthrough pain. First of all, the drug didn't last 12 hours. There's that. But there's also something else at play. There's those light withdrawal symptoms when the opioid starts to wear off and your brain is trying to get back to normal and producing these endorphins on its own. So when a doctor doubled the dose as instructed by the Purdue reps, their dependency on the drug and tolerance would only increase. As with the increased dose that the doctors were prescribing, they were increasing the tolerance of their patients. And then the addiction rate comes back into play. So... Purdue reps were noticing when they'd go back to doctors, some of the practices when they'd pull up in the car park or whatever, were attracting a different sort of crowd. Um, Firstly, seeing a crowd outside a doctor's surgery is never a good thing. (laughs) A doctor's surgery isn't one of the great hangouts, which told the drug reps that something was going on here. Any Purdue rep that would report these findings back to Purdue, you know, in their notes, case notes, things like that, would be shut down immediately. Like told to shut the fuck up. Don't put that in your notes next time. Just tell us. Just come to us straight away. Give us a call. It became a situation where the only way you could find out bad information about OxyContin from Purdue Pharma was if you were lucky enough to find a whistleblower. And just on the drug reps for a second, I am not going to sit here and bash them for being horrible people by getting doctors to prescribe this drug. Firstly, there's a huge paycheck in it for them. The more they're able to get their doctors to prescribe, the higher those doctors prescribe in terms of dosage, you know, 10 milligram, 20 milligram, 30, up to 160 milligrams, they would just make more money. Um, and hindsight's twenty twenty. Sure, like it's all well and good for us to sit here now knowing all of these things and knowing that OxyContin is addictive as fuck, but I'm not kidding when I say that like the general public and doctors were getting fucking hoodwinked by this. The drug reps were being fed the same information that they were feeding the doctors and the doctors were believing them. And at the end of the day, it was in the hands of the doctors to prescribe it. I'm not saying it's the doctor's fault at all. The more we go into this episode and the more we find out what was actually going on underneath at the core and all of this misinformation that was just being spread, the only person I think you can blame is Purdue Pharma, truly. For the reps, like it was almost cultish. Listen to this. That was a Purdue event for drug reps and That borderline impressive final note was sung by the VP of sales at Purdue Pharma. A CDC study showed that of the people given a month-long prescription to an opioid in the same class and strength as OxyContin, the rate of addiction was 30%, not 1%. But of course, that 1% number is, is bullshit. If within a year, these reps could go back to their doctor's surgery and find people queuing outside waiting to get another prescription of OxyContin when their last one had run out faster than they intended it to, yeah, that 1% number is fucking bullshit. 
Pharmacies were reporting armed robberies where the only thing the robbers took was boxes and boxes of OxyContin. Sheriffs in various districts were noticing patterns that most of the crimes reported in their area had a patient on OxyContin at the heart of them. So where the fuck did this 1% come from? Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. Firstly, they didn't actually do any human trials to do with the addictive rate of OxyContin to deliver to the FDA. The drug was only slightly different to MS-Contin. And in those boundaries, they could do one of two things. They could check for the rate of addiction, do tests, do clinical trials, or they could just opt out and have the drug sit alongside all the other opioids in terms of addiction and dependency rates. They obviously went with the latter. So the only difference between OxyContin and any other highly addictive opioid on the market is that Purdue Pharma had their FDA report drafted up by Curtis Wright from the FDA. And as from where this 1% comes from, this is like possibly the grossest but juiciest part of this whole story. Purdue cited a study from the New England Journal of Medicine, and usually that's enough for people who are on the outside of it to just be like, oh, cool, the New England Journal of Medicine? Yeah, I've read that. <laughs> yep, cool. Makes sense. I'll allow it. Like, that's, that sentence is going to be enough for most people. I personally have never read the New England Journal of Medicine until this episode, actually. It wasn't until people started to actually look for this study in the journal that they realised the problem. It wasn't a study. It was a fucking letter to the editor. Dr. Herschel Jick wrote a letter to the editor in 1980 regarding addiction being rare in hospitalised patients being treated with narcotics. It was a four-sentence letter that formed the backbone for Purdue. And it also had nothing to do with OxyContin. And the keyword is hospitalised. When there's a doctor in control of what medications you take and at what times of the day, completely under their control, not a full bottle of OxyContin prescribed to an everyday person with full freedom to take as many as they want in any given time. One of the worst parts is that Dr. Jick had no idea that the study that they were referring to was his letter to the editor. Because no one did. That's the point. If people found out that this 1% number, this golden statistic that was the backbone for OxyContin, if people found out that that was a letter to the editor that had nothing to do with OxyContin, the jig would be up. When Dr. Herschel Jick was asked by the Associated Press about the whole incident, he said, I'm essentially mortified that the letter to the editor was used as an excuse to do what these drug companies did. According to a study from Eastern Kentucky University on OxyContin's effect on crime in the state, OxyContin was causing people from all demographics to get caught up in crime. It was that addictive. The abuse of the drug came down to the slow-release coating. This is something we briefly spoke of before. It's something that is put on tablets that your stomach essentially breaks down in a timed release so that it can control the release of the drug into your system. But people worked out pretty quickly that if you just sucked on the pill for a little bit and then rubbed the pill on your arm or on your jacket or whatever, you could rub off this timed release coating and then you could grind it up into a fine powder and either snort it 
swallow it, or intravenously inject it. And off to the moon you would go. A former police chief in Perry County, Kentucky, reported that in a one-year period, the number of OxyContin complaints called into his office went from one every two or three months to three or four a day. An Eastern Kentucky urologist was arrested for improperly dispensing the drug and was reportedly seeing 120 patients a day prescribing OxyContin for them. In 1998, the American Pain Society launched a new campaign that would change the face of pain in America. They called it Pain as the Fifth Vital Sign. The aim of the campaign was to make pain the fifth vital sign and make pain as important of a measurement for a patient's well-being as all of the other vital signs, which are, you know, blood pressure, pulse, um, respiratory rate, and whatever the fourth one is, spidey senses, I don't know. Brochures, posters, cards were sent and displayed in every hospital that had a Purdue drug rep attached to a doctor within. It became, like, pretty inescapable. And funnily enough, it's still fucking referred to today as, like, you, you look it up and there's so many sites that are, like, talking, like, very, in a very credible fashion about how pain is the fifth vital sign, which I find really interesting, particularly because Purdue is behind the fucking campaign. They even partnered with Johnson & Johnson, you know, like no more tears, baby wash and all that jargon, who also, by the way, Johnson & Johnson have their own demons in the uh, narcotic pharmaceutical industry. Like they were really bad as well. They partnered with Johnson & Johnson to basically create these pain organizations that would act as a front for them and like publish biased information and studies that would support these companies like Purdue and Johnson & Johnson in their own endeavors. So this pain as the fifth vital sign didn't come from like a reputable pain organization. It came from Purdue Pharma. They were just behind the scenes. And another campaign they had, um, which is what I'm about to talk about now, the thing about the medication is that the base level for OxyContin was 10 milligrams. And that one wasn't the big moneymaker for Purdue. Because of the composition of the drug, it was actually cheaper for them to manufacture 20 milligrams and up. So the profit margin for the pills above 10 milligrams was fucking huge. So they started to push a new campaign called Individualize the Dose. Reps were told to tell their doctors that depending on their patient's situation, depending on their pain, depending on tolerance they might already have to opioids, they should consider starting their patients at a higher dose. For example, some people with a workplace injury might start at 30 milligrams, whereas those with a stronger tolerance and a heavier pain issue might start at 80 milligrams. So Purdue were essentially creating and fostering this culture of not only encouraging opioid use, but also accommodating your tolerance, which would only go up. And I mean, you can see where that goes with a drug as addictive as an opioid. And opioid use is referred to as a double-edged sword for a reason. Um, it's the most effective pain relief on the planet and simultaneously the most addictive substance. According to the FDA, four years after the release of OxyContin, reports of overdose and death from prescription drugs skyrocketed. The number of people who admitted to using OxyContin for non-medical purposes, like recreationally, increased dramatically, from 400,000 in 1999 
to 1.9 million in 2002 and then 2.8 million in 2003. People performing autopsies on people who had overdosed were finding like 10 to 20 undigested oxycontins in the stomachs of the deceased patient. By 2009, about 1.2 million emergency department visits were related to the misuse or abuse of pharmaceuticals, an increase of more than 98% since 2004, and more than the number of ED visits related to the use of illicit drugs like heroin and cocaine. And the worst of the bunch was fucking OxyContin. Like the number of people that were citing OxyContin in the reports to do with patients in the emergency department were trumping every other prescription drug. In 1996, the most common use of opioid pain relief was for cancer patients. Five years later, oncologists accounted for just 3% of OxyContin prescriptions. So in 2010, after growing concerns and a shit ton of lawsuits, by the way, across the country, Purdue pulled the original formula of OxyContin and released a new one. The new formula had a new system in it called ADF, which basically made the drug harder to abuse by overriding the slow-release coating. This worked to an extent because it no longer allowed people to kind of like crush the drug up into a fine powder. It was actually like gummy and sticky and a lot harder to like snort or inject for people who were abusing it. And so this meant that all the people that were abusing OxyContin suddenly weren't able to do so as easily. And so a lot of them moved on to a more readily available and actually cheaper drug, heroin. It's fucking scary. I was playing around on this like graph on this website called the NSC, which is this American um, website. I actually don't know what they do, but they, they have a lot of data in terms of overdose deaths to do with a lot of different drugs. And you can play with this graph in terms of like overdose related deaths to do with heroin, uh, opioids like OxyContin. And I was watching it from, you know, the year 1996, sliding this graph all the way up to like 2013. And from that 2010 mark to the years after it, it's like scary how much the numbers for heroin related overdoses and deaths went up and the oxycodone ones were going down. Like it is really hard to explain how bad Purdue Pharma fucked up in terms of like putting a drug on the market with such flippant and blatantly misleading statements that were leading people to believe that the drug was safe and non-addictive. And it's killed so many people, like so many people in America. But yeah, that graph was spooky and weird. So if you've got a, you know, a free Friday night coming up and you feel like having fun with a graph, I recommend that one. (laughs) This news just into CNN. In our health lead, the Supreme Court has blocked Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, from going forward with bankruptcy proceedings and a $6.6 billion settlement. This was part of an arrangement that would ultimately offer the Sackler family, the founders of Purdue Pharma, broad protection from opioid-related civil claims. The Supreme Court says they will now take up this case and hear arguments about it in December. So where are we now? As of today, Purdue have agreed to plead guilty to a three-count felony. There's a total of $8 billion in fines 
which is actually the largest penalty ever levied against a big pharma company. Because you have actually pleaded bankruptcy, which is um, actually going to be decided in December of this year. We are October 2023 as of recording. Despite OxyContin making $35 billion. Make that make sense. Actually, I can make that make sense. They were siphoning money out of the company in the later years. I just see going into it any further because we're already fucking seven hours in, aren't we? But funnily enough, not a single person is going to jail for this. Not one. Since I've been on this new pain medication, I have not missed one day of work. And my boss really appreciates that. Lauren is there every day. Taking you back to when we were talking about the promotional video that Purdue had produced with real OxyContin patients, the really tragic thing is that a lot of those patients actually ended up overdosing. I really think it just ties that up in a really awful but neat bow in terms of how awful this whole story is and how one family and one marketing exercise managed to set America on a trajectory that would change the healthcare system and opioid addiction forever. I've given you the stats and like the history. I think what is missing from this episode is the personal aspect, like the heartstring aspect. Um, and to that, I can't recommend more the docuseries Dope Sick. It's on Disney Plus if you're in Australia and if you're anywhere else, look it up yourself. There's also one on Netflix called Painkiller. Alas, that one is a carbon fucking copy of Dope Sick. I couldn't believe how similar that show was and how they got away with that in terms of their own integrity. Um, but good luck to them. Great acting and stuff. Like, it's still a good story. It was just a carbon copy of Dope Sick, basically. Watch Dope Sick. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's an amazing dramatized reality kind of docuseries. And that's where you'll get to really understand how fucking bad this drug is and what it did to America and what it did to people who, like, frankly, didn't really deserve that. Any of the doctors who prescribed OxyContin to their patients with that knowledge that they were fed, in a lot of cases, it was a death sentence and it ruined lives. It not only takes lives, but it ruins the lives of everyone around that person. Yeah, so if, if what is missing from this episode in terms of we're just going over the fact and the history, if you want that personal element, watch Dope Sick. You sit there watching it and just thinking like, what the fuck? I had to pause it so many times and just like stare straight ahead and just think because I truly can't believe how this drug ever got onto the market in the way that it did. And that's the key. So leaving you with all of that, I do hope you enjoyed this episode still. Um, yeah, it's it's really awful. And ever since I watched the shows and kind of did all the research, I'm honestly kind of speechless. So lucky you. I've got not much more to say this week. Uh, I will see you guys next week. If you're on audio, please make sure you firstly follow the show if you're not already. Second of all, leave me a review. Five stars, please. Five stars. And if you're on YouTube, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. And I'll see you guys next week. Appreciate you. Bye.